to Something for the Turbo, the new weekly podcast brought to you by Unfound, the global platform for the travel-loving cyclist. Welcome to another episode of Something for the Turbo. We hope you're all having a good week. If you're enjoying the podcast, make sure you subscribe, leave a review, tell your cycling friends and spread the word. And if you haven't discovered it yet, please go and check out the Unfound app available both on the App Store and in Google Play and register. You can register and join the global community of cyclists. It's, it's a place where you can share rides and photos and articles and general cycling content with other cyclists from around the world. So get yourself on there today and spread the word. And let me bring you today's guest, who is a former British under 23 road race champion, the current British hill climbing champion. He is is a YouTube superstar. It's Mr. Ed Laverack. Ed, thank you very much for joining us. How are you getting on? I'm good, Julian. Thank you much for having me on here. No, thank you very much for joining us. I'm sure you're, you're pretty busy with, with YouTube and training, of course. How's it been the last few months with, with lockdown? Obviously quite a disruption for you, given you had big ambitions this year. What what, what races have you lost thus far and, and how are you sort of keeping motivated and focused? Yeah, well, there was, there was the British road calendar that was kind of my main focus. And then when that was was kind of pulled away from from under my feet so to speak i was kind of left in the dark a little bit just like lots of others i guess but you know with with youtube with the stuff i was doing i was already live streaming zwift races quite regularly up until uh, lockdown kicked in, in in the uk but i just saw it as an opportunity to to live stream every day i mean that's what i would be doing anyway i'd be i'd be zwift racing or, or at least training indoors on Zwift so that's what I did for the best part of 11 weeks and the UK went into official lockdown and and in terms of did you have to refocus your training or I mean do we know are you going to be able to defend your your British hill, hill climbing have we had a confirmation on that yet it's still very much up in the air the there's a, there's a lot of races that are I mean you can plan for them but until there's anything you know the government give you the absolute all clear to do something then or, or even the sport you know like welsh cycling british cycling scottish cycling you know that they, they have to give i guess the correct guidance and um for the time being there's, there's some positive waves being made i mean the time trials are starting again um, yeah they are yeah and you know hill climbing in a way is is taking up less road but what you do get with hill climbing in the UK, at least, is a lot of people stood on the side of the road, which, yeah, of which I think, you know, kind of, I don't think that's going to be able to to happen, at least possibly until maybe the end of the hill climbing season. But then the Nationals, do the Nationals happen? I'm hoping they don't. <laughs> You're hoping they don't? I'm hoping they don't, because it will be a hard time for me to defend my national title on such a short hill this year but, but also to to do a hill climb with no spectators as well i mean that's going to be pretty soul destroying <laughs> yeah it's just like doing it's just like doing a strava segment i guess um yeah i suppose yeah crazy so let, let, let's go back a bit a little bit because oh well, i forgot to mention happy birthday for yesterday <laughs> thank you <laughs> did you have a good day yeah i did actually there was actually no bike rider involved there was lots of cake well in fact i had cake for breakfast so i suppose that that you can't top that, really. No, you can't top that. Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, given given your relative young years, you seem to have been around the, the UK scene for, for a very long time. When did you get into riding a bike and you sort of turned pro at 18, was it? Talk us through the early days. Yeah, the well, I was a member of Binia Cycling Club from the age of around 15, 16. And um, long story short, I raced a couple of uh, crits and time trials as part of the club and I made quite a rapid uh, a rapid rise to 
I guess, the competitive side of cycling. As yeah. as a junior, which is between the ages of sixteen to eighteen, I didn't really, I didn't really have any other goal or ambition apart from to win the junior tour wheels, which at the time was uh, well. Some of the biggest, yeah, some yeah. of the biggest one day, best one day bike riders have, have, have won that bike race. You know, Garen Thomas has won it. Um, and I was just kind of solely focused on that. And in, in 2012, 2011, the transition I went, I put myself through then. I, I, I trained, some would say I trained like too much as, as a final year as a junior, but I, I saw it as the only way I could, uh, I guess, because I came into the sport late as a 15 16 year old i almost saw it as that i had to catch up yeah with the other juniors that have been riding since they were you know eight or seven or even younger so you know i i I put in a good performance and i came out third overall i i think i did a pretty much apart from one stage that there was there was five stages and one stage there was a prologue as well one stage ended in a in a sprint finish in a in a bunch finish and that was the only stage I didn't finish outside the top 10 for so I was pretty consistent every stage and then after that uh, I think like there was a period of maybe two months where you know it's kind of the end of the season and things time to wind down this this was late August um, the junior tour wheels and I never I never kind of uh, went out of my way to to look teams I was still relatively new to the sport so I didn't really know what what I should be doing and even though I was kind of under the guidance of Welsh Cycling at the time, I never reached out to any teams. I, I wasn't really proactive in that sense. But funny enough, one rider was leaving Rafa Condor. Well, it was then to be Rafa Condor GLT that winter. And he was going back to university and a spot became available in the team. Okay. And um, John Herity, who was manager of Rafa Condor, then he approached uh, Welsh Cycling to inquire about me because um, he actually signed Hugh Carthy, Will Stevenson, and then myself. So the top three who finished on the podium that year in that race, he went on to sign. And obviously Hugh Carthy has gone on to amazing yeah. things to, to yeah. ride at World Tour. And yeah, that's that's kind of like my my foothold into into the world of competitive cycling. And and you say you started cycling sort of 15. Did you have an athletic background as a kid growing up or did you play much sport or what what was your sort of Typically I played football, you know. It was my growing up around here in in south West Wales, you kind of you have Swansea City, you have, you know, good facilities for well, rugby or football really um yeah but i never wanted to i never wanted to play rugby but i always wanted to play football to a to a very high level and i managed to get into the the town academy so classly academy and okay. worked my way up um the ranks to to play for the under 15s and then i didn't make the cut so i took a step back and i went back to play for my village or i guess you know my small club and it was there that i began to kind of reassess and think you know was that like the moment where you know if if they weren't going to take me on and that wasn't meant to be then um then would I have to find a different sport? And ironically, the the Olympics were on um, around about the same time. And you know, this was in this was in two thousand and eight. And I remember thinking, which sport looks the most appealing? Which sport looked the most kind of fascinating and cool? And I watched. It was a Sunday morning. I watched Nicole Cook win the women's Olympic road race. Yeah, um, amazing. Yeah. Which you know, 
I think sometimes you know we we look at we look at a lot of sporting icons, and usually you know males usually look up to male sporting icons, and uh, you know females the same. And it was it just so happened that that it was Nicole Cook. Um, it wasn't the men's road race that I was watching; it was the women's road race, and it was horrendous conditions. You know, it was raining. Um, there was very little left of the bike race at that point, and yeah, that that just that just looked insane to me. And you know, ever since then, you know, the sport has still amazed me in, in in the sense that you know there's the hill climbing there's cycle cross there's track there's so many different things in the umbrella of cycling there's ultra endurance you know the not even it's not even mainstream although it is now becoming mainstream the ultra endurance side of it yeah it's fascinating there's so many facets to it and you can keep discovering it and there's really something for everyone as well so once you know once it captures your imagination you, you're kind of hooked then aren't you game over yeah it's a giant money pit <laughs> yeah yeah oh yeah oh god is that is that you had six years with rafa right dlt it was six years and, and raced all over the world with them and had some had some good times mm-hmm. yeah i was one actually one of the longest standing riders to be there uh in one kind of you know in one in one stint in one go lots of riders you know kind of came and went and then came back again um yeah you know, Russ Downing, Graham Briggs, you know, these riders who, and of course, you know, Christian House, who, yes, yeah. you know, they, they kind of, national. yeah, yeah, national champion, you know, stayed there, stayed there for a long, long time, for a long stint in his career. So I was quite, I was very grateful to, to be on the team for that length of time, but I didn't feel like I came into my own until, you know, the last two years of its existence. I was very much on a massive learning curve for those those first um, four years. Yeah. And do you feel, obviously, watching your YouTube channel, you obviously have, you have quite an analytical approach to to your riding and racing. Is that what you were picking up in those first four, four years, figuring out a system that works for you best as an athlete? Yes, I jumped between coaches. I think it was around three, three coaches. So probably went through more coaches than... A Premier League team goes through managers, um, yeah. but I, yeah, I, I was. I think it was just because of my lack of depth in stamina. You know, my my knowledge of the sport was very small. Truth be told, you know, when I joined Rafa, I didn't even know who John Herity was. You know, I, I didn't know of his history. I didn't know, you know, of his pedigree. Um, I didn't know any of the writers on the team. I never watched the tour series, which for people listening who don't know, that is, it's probably one of the biggest criterion based race series in the world based in the uk and we kind of dominated it for a long period of time and yeah the the first four years are very difficult like we spent stints in australia we used to go to australia and do training camps in from boxing day until the middle of february so it was a big stint out there um do a couple of races and you know i, I i'd get i'd get my head kicked in in australia purely on the heat you know and I've never had any experience racing I'd never been abroad um up until I went to Australia with with the team at the time so I'd never experienced heat like that not even in the UK so it was kind of it was a massive learning curve in many ways and I think my ability as a bike rider was was very small at that time even though I'd managed to kind of get myself on the team and get myself there um yeah lots of them could tell that I was still I was I was still carrying puppy fat you know I was still 64 65 kilos which when I look back on pictures then you know I, I can tell that I'm not you know fully developed and I, I I kind of took almost until I was 23 until I had kind of formed into something that looked a little bit more like a like a racing cyclist and a, and a hill climber 
um, than, yeah, I, than yeah. I did when I was 18 to 20. And I think, you know, I didn't even for a minute back then think that I was, you know, uh, overweight or out of shape for, for my height. You know, I was, I'm, I'm 177 centimeters, six foot, give or take. And, um, you know, I was 64 kilos, which is, you know, that's not, that's not, that's not out of shape by any means. But over the years, it's just developed into, you know, natural development. And you find your ideal body shape. And through all the riding, you know, your body finds that natural kind of balance. You figure out what works for you, yeah. And obviously, you mentioned you think this a bit of that was puppy fat, but also, do you think that was figuring out from a nutrition perspective what worked for you individually as, as a, personally as well? Yeah, I think it was a little bit, but I definitely didn't pay any attention to my nutrition. You didn't? No. No. Okay. There's. I don't. I've been in the seven years that I was in, or six or seven years I was in the sport in um, to to the elite level in the UK. I I would probably hedge my bets that the the majority of the peloton don't uh take their nutrition as seriously as they possibly could wow there's okay. a there's a lot there's a lot of riders that would probably i'm not going to say they'd benefit from you know having better nutrition because some some riders swear on you know i'll have a bar of chocolate the night before a race and that helps me go better there's a lot of kind of tradition in you know um feed the body kind of you know what what you want to feed it and it'll fly the next day it is almost like a like a lucky charm sort of thing um yeah whereas you know i know i know some riders and you know not no surprise that they're the experienced ones that are you know very very basic and and clean and yes they allow themselves the treats and things but they understand the the importance of of the, the nutrition then I guess yeah yeah that's interesting I didn't realize it was a, a more recent thing for you and are there still sort of nutritional dogmas that are floating around sort of pro cycling you know myths about eating x y and z will will do whatever or or is there is there more and more science creeping into the consciousness for everyone now I think there is more more and more creeping in I mean it it's in your face every day almost with you know, technology on your phones, you know, watching, well, even watching YouTube videos. But I think, you know, you see the trends of today with, you know, vegan, you know, riders going vegan and they, they, you know, gain 5% of their performance, you know, things like this. And, you know, it does, it does make you sit back and think then, oh, I wonder if I could be trialing something in the off season. Because traditionally, that's the other thing as well. Traditionally, the off season, which tends to fall in you know october november riders are you know they will take that month off and they will eat whatever they want to eat and you know funny enough a lot of riders in the uk did that when lockdown was announced and they knew that no racing was going to happen for the next you know x amount of months but yeah really you know i think my my personal perspective on that is you know if you've got if you've got sponsors who sponsor a team and they want the most out of those riders. They want those riders to be prepared all of the time. Like if if a race was to pop up on the calendar in a month's time and they say, we want the team to go and race that race, and the team goes around and says, oh, right, rider A, we want you to go and ride that race, and rider A goes, oh, I'm five kilos out of shape, then they'll be saying, well, why are you five kilos out of shape when you should be this is the time where you could be like really going for the gains yeah and i think to a certain 
to a certain extent, you 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 owe it to the people who there are people who who love the British cycling scene. You know, they they follow cycling. It's a little bit different to following the Tour de France and having you know like looking out for those riders. But there are people who who are big fans of you know they're big fans of me on the hill climbing scene and they're big fans of you know the riders who race the road races in the UK. And I think you you owe it to a certain extent to to them to perform and to give them a good show and to um, to be at the top of your game like as much as you can for for your whole career. Yeah. And yeah, the off season is just a. I don't think it's a thing anymore. I think you know with cyclocross, with Zwift racing, with you know anything now. I think the advances in training and everything and nutrition as well. I think. Riders are just recovering faster. They're able to train more efficiently, and the off season doesn't—I don't think—is needed. I think you could see riders now trialing, you know, going vegan for a month rather than just eating McDonald's for a month. Or getting on the yeah, I, I think just in general, just in terms of all sports as well, I think there's probably a realization that actually it, it's in—it makes your life easier if you keep yourself in good nick in the off season. <laughs> Yeah, I think it it just it just yeah it's just, it's not healthy to be swinging back and forth. Of course, yeah. So talk us through what happened when when uh, JLT folded. Obviously, that was a difficult time for you. Did you know it was coming? How was that communicated? Well, uh, I was in a slightly different situation to everybody else because the the June that June that the 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 team folded in September. In June, we went to the Tour de Beauce in Canada and uh near quebec and we we raced uh quite a quite a renowned stage race there and i had a big crash on i think it was stage three i can't really remember much from it but i left half of my skin in canada i know that but we we were having doubts about the the sponsorship and uh, where the team was going to go as of um the following year because it's around that time of year in, in the summertime where, you know, riders sign new contracts and obviously teams to a certain extent when they're looking for sponsors, you know, it's the same kind of it's the same kind of timing, although they do try to be proactive nearly all the time looking at, at sponsors and sponsorship. So I was when I crashed and I flew home, I was kind of out of the loop for wow, uh, maybe two and a bit months while I recovered. And I think when I started coming back, it was being talked about amongst the riders and the staff, but only the ones at the races. And I never okay. really, I ne- you know, it's that kind of bubble. You know, if you're out of the bubble, you, you don't really get the, the, the idea and the feeling and the atmosphere as well. Because when, when they rocked up to the Tour of Britain, which, you know, that year I was actually focused more on the Tour of Britain uh, and, qu- and actually getting a spot on the team for the Tour of Britain because it was starting in my hometown. Of course, yeah. And the the downside, like when I showed up to the hotel because I was going to take them for a pre-race ride the day before, which is something that like I'll never forget because we exited the hotel and maybe like 200 meters later, we jumped on the cycle path and we rode for an hour and a half on the cycle path network around here which is like up and down the coast and you know the commander council have done a really good job on on making like miles and miles of coastal path uh, accessible for everybody here so when i took funny enough alex dosa came out with us um on that ride 
And uh, yeah, he he couldn't believe, you know, speaking from his experience, he couldn't believe that there was such a place in the UK with, you know, a coastal path and like a forest cycle path, you know, all tarmac. Um, Amazing. And there was just a cafe at the end of it. So we, we didn't even have to get on the road to go to the cafe. So um, yeah, it was it was perfect. And uh, I found out then in the team bus when I when I took them back, and uh, John sat us all down and he and he told us then that that would be that tour Britain would be the last race that the team would do. Wow, I mean, where does your head even go when you when you hear that before a race? Yeah, well, luckily I wasn't racing, but the boys had a pretty tough time that week um yeah being being a part of the whatsapp group you know you could you could tell just by the messages that you know motivation was low they still performed you know a couple of the boys still performed and they did great rides but you know it is hard and but some of them i think knew it was coming because they were in that bubble and they or you know rather they they weren't told but they could get the feeling and the sense and yeah, yeah, yeah. especially if you're especially if you're proactive as well going to other teams and and you know, the middle of the year and you start talking to them and they go, oh, have you heard that, that your own team is in trouble? And, you know, sometimes that could be secondhand information and you wouldn't even know coming from your own team. I'm not saying that happened because I didn't have a clue. I was at home resting up, but um, I, I felt like, well, exactly that. Like I, I didn't, I didn't have uh, another team. I didn't have a plan B. So when the new team of Swift Carbon came around, I knew one of the riders. I think this is where it comes down to connections again. It really, really helps if you if you have connections. I knew one of the riders on the team, and I asked him, "Could you like forward me a phone number for for the manager?" And I got in touch, and and then we signed like not long after. But it was it was very scrappy, you know. I yeah. I, I didn't like. I'm the type of person that doesn't like, you know leaving it to the last minute or you know things aren't planned or something crops up that you haven't uh, factored in you know and and that was like a real shock to the system and a bit of a wake-up call as well that's crazy i mean it's the more I've, I've spoken to a number of people in the last couple of months and as an outsider the more you hear about the the internal ramblings of the sport it makes you realize how dysfunctional in some regards it is and how tough it is as well mm-hmm yeah which is a, which is difficult but so last year though it was was a good year for yourself yeah it was a good year i mean i raced the well i raced the tour of britain and well i say i raced it you know it, it was a it was a tour of the uk <laughs> that that i enjoyed on my bike racing those races is completely different to what i expected it to be I, i've raced i've raced the tour of yorkshire and yeah. you know i kind of had a sense of how it goes down but that's only a couple of days you know the, the tour of britain is is obviously a week long and it's a funny one because you know you have uh, there was a quote i can't remember it so i'm not going to recite it i'll bodge it so there was there was a quote that i heard something along the lines of the tour of britain is where you know you get say a third of the peloton come there like on form and they're like chomping at the bit because they ha- they've hardly raced all year, and then you get yeah. then you get another third of the peloton that are like you know kind of you know they're there to support other riders and they're a bit tired from the year, and then you get a, the other third of the peloton who you know are on a holiday and they can't be bothered to be there. So <laughs> that's what that's the uh, that's roughly the call I I heard, and that was in the peloton itself. It wasn't around the dinner table. It wasn't one of those chats. Yeah. 
but I could definitely see, you know, how, how that played out. It's very strange, you know, the, the dynamics of, you know, you have strong teams controlling the race and when they want to go, you know, they will go when they want to light the race up, you know, it, it's showtime and there's no like there's no hanging about but in the same in the same breath you know you know the hardest stages for me were actually the ones with the sprint finishes it was it was like an unbelievable just like how fast they would come into a finish uh yeah I, I, I'm, not, I'm not talking like the last 5k i'm talking like the last 40k um yeah 40K, you know, yeah, 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 yeah 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 you're just you're you're for someone like myself, you know, sixty kilos soaking wet, and you, even even if I'm sat in the right place in the bunch, I'm still, you know, pressing the pedals the whole time just to just to stay in the group. Um, wow! And you know, I actually got dropped on the run into the Newcastle stage um, because I was in the wrong place, and there was in the final, I think it was the final eight kilometers, there was lots and lots of roundabouts. I remember that there was lots of road furniture. And you know we were doing fifty k an hour rattling along, and I just Jesus. I just didn't I didn't feel confident in the people in front of me, and I, yeah. and I was also struggling. You know I was I was kind of in the wind a little bit, and I wasn't able to to hold myself there. You know, but there's people like James Shaw who you know he's only a couple of kilos heavier than me, but he's another level again. So you know he he's able to ride you know a lot different to me in that sense. So he was able to look after himself a lot better than I was and it wasn't his first tour break neither but then the Kendall stage which was the hilliest stage was actually the easiest stage for me you know and and that's I guess that's obvious because it was it was so hilly that I was able to ride within myself on the climbs whereas a lot of people were you know kind on of the river. yeah you know 70, yeah. 70 odd kilos and they were having to ride a lot harder but it was eye-opening in, in that in that regard you know it was like they're so strong on the flat and once they get their speed going there's no stopping them but then you know, when we go up climbs, and granted, you know, there wasn't like world, like world class climbers in the field. Then, you know, it was like a different. It was, it was honestly like a different race. Um, going up the climbs, it was like, yeah, it was like doing a different race. So that was good. It must be an awesome experience, sort of rubbing shoulders with, with some of those riders, and despite the the sort of sketchy run-ins, full gas to, to the sprint stages in Newcastle, it must have been a brilliant experience. Yeah, I, I loved it. Yeah. You know, every every race has, you know, some part to play in in your career, whether that be a racing career or, you know, just whatever wherever the bike takes you. Yeah, yeah, that's true. This is always learning something everywhere along the way, right? Mm-hmm. Your British Hill Climbing Championship last year as well. Talk, talk us through the numbers. I mean, was it 7.25 watts per kilogram for five and a half kilometers? Is that right? Yeah, that's what I Yeah. That's what happens when you train for something really specific, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think <laughs> I think it's taken it I remember, you know, being sent messages by people saying, you know, that's that's world tour numbers and that's, you know, and I'm very I've kind of I've not blocked that out now, but you know, I understand where they're coming from, but I also reply to them with one word and that's perspective. Like, you know, you could do that dead fresh off a standing star you know you could have trained like i did i trained for it for like six weeks and that that was like the best i could have gone physically like equipment wise i probably could have gone faster you know i'm, I'm not talking you know a minute faster i'm talking maybe you know 10 15 seconds faster but in terms of um in terms of training and preparation like that's what happens when everything you know in my opinion went right and you know that's 
you know, that was a, well, I would like to think if the climb was a little bit longer, I could have held on to 7 watts per kilo for 20 minutes, which some people have told me is not possible. But yeah, it begs the question. It begs the question. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, look, I think you've been incredibly modest. Modest, I think they're <laughs> sensational, sensational numbers. Talk, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, I mentioned to a few people that, that you were kindly coming on to join and had a lot of questions around equipment. So we'll come on to that in a minute. But talk us through that six-week training block looking at targeting this race what what, what did it look like and how did you prepare yourself for it well the first thing I did was I actually sat down and I like you know I marked that day on the calendar and for me when I uh, I've actually learned about this about myself the last couple of years and that's if I put something down and I say I'm going to work towards that then I'm very good at working towards that one thing that one goal and kind of reverse engineering it. So what's it going to take to to not necessarily win, but beat the favourite? And, you know, the the hill climb season in the UK is very much, you know, I guess, you know, you, it's no secret. You know, a lot of people are on Strava. You can look at, you know, guys who are in the top five on the early season hill climb event in September. And you can see, okay, so this guy is doing, you know, 6.7 watts per kilo for 12 minutes. You know, this guy's coming second. There's gone 10 seconds lower so you, you know you start kind of doing the sums doing the maths and for me I didn't have like a power target until a week before that event so the training was was all about kind of how much time can I spend over threshold and it was it was it was in a way I never set myself the, the limitation then of you know i want to hold 430 watts for you know 11 and a half minutes it was more a case of how much time can i accumulate in training at 430 to 480 watts and then my theory was that if i was able to do say you know the one minute on 30 seconds off one minute on 30 seconds off the micro intervals that we start to see trending quite a lot now and and these the on periods would be they wouldn't be flat out but they would be you know kind of 450 to 480 watts so i would be able to do chunks of those for you know 20 minutes at a time and the idea would be that i'd spend probably a maximum of 20 minutes a session at 450 plus watts and wow so my idea would be then if i was able to do that in a session would i be able to clump that together to ride for 12 minutes at the same power without any kind of you know uh, over and unders saying that though part of the i guess this is what's fascinating with that climb that i won the national championships on was that it did have a flat section it actually had a, a 45 second flat section with about one and a half kilometers to go or just under a kilometer to go maybe and um that's where i actually recovered i i did the least amount of power the whole climb up there and yeah. it was a tailwind so I was able to recover and give more on the last steep section to the finish um, where momentum obviously played its biggest part. But that was the training, you know, the the nutrition. It was kind of, you know, for me, I've been playing about with it for a couple of years now. And that's kind of why I've got down to this kind of sweet spot of 58 to 60, you know, 60, 61 kilos. It, it kind of, it, when you get down to you know a degree of of leanness i guess it your weight actually fluctuates quite a lot because you know you drink you might drink more one day than the next or you might eat slightly more carbs than the next or you know that there's variations that will happen naturally um yeah of course 
so it's only as I got closer to the event that I that I started to kind of you know manipulate the food more where you know I'd only eat the carbs around the session and the sessions wouldn't be I would try not to burn more than 2,000 kilojoules per session um, and that was about probably five rides a week that were around about 2,000 kilojoules um, burned and the reason being that I didn't want to burn too many because that put me in too much of a deficit and then I'd have to eat more and in, inflammation is inflammation so if you eat this is a very basic way of looking at it but if you you know if you put your body through a hard training session then that's going to cause inflammation and then your body might react by putting on a little bit of weight or, or preserving things but then if you do burn too much and you try to eat a lot then to compensate and to create that balance, then that's also going to cause inflammation because you're putting so much food in that your body's then going, okay, I'm going to have to fight this now. I'm not fight it, but you know, there's, there's more things to deal with. So the, the more balance I can create and the less inflammation I can create, then, then that's what I'm going to shoot for. So, yeah, it was, it was a very... It's a real delicate balancing act, right? It is. It is a very, very good balancing act. And obviously, I want to come onto your YouTube channel in a, in a little bit, if that's okay. But just for anyone listening, uh, if you haven't yet, do check out Ed's YouTube channel. We will put the details in in the show notes. It's it's super interesting, informative, and it's very entertaining as well. So we're we're, we're big fans. With regard to that specific hill, obviously, I've watched the film. Did you train specifically with that flat section in mind, and how you? deal with that well i didn't do yeah i didn't do any race um, because there were so many races in the build-up to this particular hill climb i used other hill climbs uh, actual races to simulate so the actual week before that hill climb there was there was a hill climb in in bristol and it was a let me try and get this right now it was a six and a half minute climb i think and i took around 30 seconds if i can recollect off the course record that day the wind was favorable but i did 7.3 or 7.3 watts per kilo for, for six and a half minutes, which wasn't a personal best power for six and a half minutes, but I rode it because it, it wasn't a it wasn't one continuous gradient. It had different pitches, it had um it had a steep section near the top, and then the final half a kilometer was actually like pretty much a like flat road. Okay. So I invested a lot of energy early on where it was steep. And then I, yes. I almost, I mean, to give you numbers, you know, the, the steeper sections, I was probably doing 500 watts. And then the flatter sections, I was almost going down to 380. It was a, there was a big difference. And that was actually the fastest. So I'm going to plug the software, but I don't get, you know, don't get anything for, for plugging this. But Best Bike Split allowed me to break down the climb and to see where to invest the most amount of energy on on my pacing strategy. So I put in what power I thought I could hold. Yeah. I never thought that, you know, fast forward a week, that I would be able to hold the same power on that climb, but for twice the time. Twice the distance. Yeah, twice the time. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so it wasn't even twice the distance. It was twice the time. So it was pretty much 12. It was a 12-minute effort on Haytor, and that climb was six, maybe six minutes 20, I think it was. So I, I that's what was, to me, I probably, I couldn't have gone harder, though, on that climb in, in that 
Like, although it was close to a power PB, I couldn't have gone harder because I wasn't training for a climb that short. To me, a six minute climb is still short. To me, 11 minute climb is still short because if you think about it, you know, it's over before, you know, even, even a 10 mile time trial is over before you think about it sometimes yeah yeah yeah. wow mad mad numbers it's, it's hard to fathom as a mere mortal um <laughs> so uh, obviously you, you you won that and you, you got some really good publicity off the back of that and I th- is that that's obviously because of the youtube channel as well do you think or and the name that you're sort of making yourself on the for yourself on the social media side as well do you think i think got a lot was, of headlines yeah i think it was a little bit of that funny enough my parents said to me maybe two or three weeks afterwards because two or three two or three weeks after that that win you know i was getting people contacting me to do you know interviews like this and and you know like magazines and you know also sponsorship as well um for particularly for hill climbing and my my parents said to me you're actually getting more publicity for this than you did when you won the under 23 british road race championships And, and i was that was in 2014 and i was actually I was only just outside the top 10 in the in the elite race. So I wasn't that far down on, you know, Pete Kennick and Garen Thomas and, and all the rest of those skyriders. So, you know, I think it was more down to social media presence. And the thing with the national championship was it was, and this is what I like, I follow a couple of people on YouTube that, that they don't live in the UK, they live in America, but... And, and they're not in cycling either, which is um, which is interesting. They're they're still in the fitness industry, but they're more you know kind of physique competitors then. And I find I find it interesting how they they you know they pick a show or they pick an event that they're going to be you know at their leanest, at their you know best physical shape for, and then they count down to it. And they'll do daily videos. They'll do you know weekly. They'll do and they'll show. Like as much as they can show, given the time that it takes to edit a video and get it out and everything else. And that's what I wanted to do with, with the British Hill Climb Challenge. So I think the hype, for lack of a better word, um, that it built up into that day, you know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't so much the days. It's quite funny in a way because there's, there's some videos in there that actually, you know, if you, if you really watch them, there's the really interesting bits about the training and about the nutrition and the preparation. But they don't have a lot of views. But the video where I win the national championships has, you know, 20,000 plus views. And of course, you know, that's the way that YouTube works and, and the world works and people will click on that video. But that's just the accumulation of what's happened over the last month that I've documented in the build up to it. So I think, uh, I think I like creating that story of, you know, you just document it and, you, you know, you don't try to be fancy. It's just, you know, you're just trying to just trying to hopefully give a blueprint maybe for, you know, a 15 or 16 year old who's just coming up and starting as well. Yeah, well, I think it's that the fact that it is obviously, obviously we mentioned you for, for mere mortals for amazing numbers but it's the fact that it's so interesting to see the process you go through but it's also so relatable you come across as being just yourself you, you know you, you're not sort of do you know what i'm trying to say it's yeah. it's just very real i think which is why it's it's enjoyable to watch yeah it's hard it's hard to describe it's hard to describe it but i just don't i don't the reason why i started youtube the reason why I started YouTube was to <laughs> stop people from my local area from coming up to me and asking me when my next race was. Uh, is that why? Why you did it? Well, it's one of the main reasons. Basically, I would end up, I would, I would go out on club club rides, and you know, one rider would come up to me and say, "Also, oh, what race have you got this weekend?" 
And then I tell him, and then, you know, somebody else would come up to me, you know, later on in the ride and say, what right, what race have you got this week? And I just end up kind of repeating myself and, you know, they don't know that I'm repeating myself, but you know, I, I, I was just starting to get, okay, there must be a way of like, so, you know, you can do a blog, you can, you know, do Facebook updates, you can do Twitter updates, but I know that, you know, if you, not that you cover all bases, but at least with video, it's, it's about as natural as it gets, especially if you, if you leave most of the footage alone. And yeah, that, that's just how it started, really. Brilliant. So you started YouTube for the you know, I, I think most cyclists will, who, who have family that don't cycle just drives them nuts when you come back from a ride or they've heard you riding and they say, how far do you go? <laughs> and you're like, it's not, really, it's not really the point. But it's that, it's that kind of thing, right? You just get fed up with the same questions the whole time. And that's how you started it. But that's very cool. And are you, you started that a few years ago now. Just when um, JLT was folding, was that around about when you kicked it off? Well, it was, it was a little bit before it was a little bit before then. I think I actually started the channel in 2015, but I didn't. I think, you know, you can create a YouTube channel and watch other videos and comment. I think that's why a lot of people have a, a YouTube channel or a YouTube account, rather. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I started, I mean, there's some there's some golden ones back, like when I did the tour of Japan, tour of Korea, where we stayed in a love hotel, um, which is like... You know, I know. It's, it's tradition i think when you do that bike race that you stay in one of those hotels um <laughs> you know because the race organization choose you know where where the team stay you know you don't really get a you don't really get a choice and uh you know when you tour in the length of the country you know you could be staying anywhere but thankfully yeah. thankfully most of the places you know e- even that hotel you know it was a lovely hotel yeah but but yeah, it's uh, there's a couple of gems like my I almost I was just outside the top ten on the Mount Fuji stage of the Tour of Japan. That's on there somewhere. Uh, That's a beautiful climb, right? Yeah, it's a lovely climb. Yeah, yeah. But I got to go back and find some of those. We'll put again some in the show notes, or if you want to go find them, I'm sure you can scroll back. So so this this year, the plan and and the reality. So obviously, you you move teams to Samparan, right? Yes. Yeah. And then talk us through the, the the wider plan of what what you wanted to do this year and, and why you made the, the the team move and what the goal was really. Yeah. So the goal really was uh, see if I could balance, I guess, road racing in the UK with this kind of alternative calendar that would be hill climbing. And I feel like hill climbing as it on its own is its own sport, I think. You know, it's yeah. there's equipment, there's, you know, you know, special bike, special equipment, you know, the, the, even the training that goes into it, particularly now that, you know, especially for myself, I'm not just limiting myself to, you know, UK hill climbs or events but also so much right yeah 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 so and actually i'm gonna interject there because i may forget to ask you and i know a few people would be pretty livid with me if i did given your attention to detail and and your sort of fastidious preparation around your hill climbing talk us through equipment where are you are you going sort of full in cutting things off the bike getting as light as possible what's what's your current sort of strategy with preparing the bike for a hill climb my my idea of a hill climbing bike is one that has to be functional i think if i could ride a hill climb just like the national championships where I won, you know, I could have put the bottle cages back on that bike and I could have done, you know, a five hour ride on it. And I think, I think, you know, hill climbing, it is a very, it is a very pure part of, 
I guess, British cycling culture, but it is yes. starting to, I think, make its way into, you know, the world cycling culture, you know, through people like Phil Guyman, through yeah. Lachlan Morton, you know, who's just tried his hand at the Everest in challenge. Yeah. Um, I- and, and yeah, and they and they don't have to, you know, they've been riding on, you know, disc brake bikes. They've been very lightweight frames, um, but nothing, you know, nothing's been really kind of hacked or bodged or anything like that. But for the for the British hill climb scene, you know, I think you can still be competitive and not, you know, cut the the drops off your handlebars. I've done that, you know, but the the furthest I'll go really is to take the handlebar tape off and the bottle cages off. Yeah. But, but you know, the starting point, I think as long as you get the starting point right, so a skeleton frame, if you can get a frame set that, you know, weighs, I guess, less than a kilo, yeah. you know, that that's that's your bold starting point. And then, you know, the wheels then are the next place that you can really save a lot of weight. I was actually running a alloy set of wheels, hand built i was actually supporting chin lad wheels who were based in gloucestershire i think and and yeah i they weighed in at like 1.4 kilos so they were around about 400 grams heavier than what you know i guess what you'd call the the favorites for that race were riding um i think my bike came in for that day at around 6.2 around about six so i was losing about maybe half a kilo maybe a little bit more on some of the some of the favorites in that race but this this year particularly next year because there's not so much left of this year and it, you know yeah. it's, it's all very patchy so what i've been working on at the minute with Tifosi, the my bike sponsor you know we we haven't uh we haven't gone all in for for this year because there's not much left of it but next year we are going to to kind of see what we can push and yeah i'll the first thing i'll be doing is looking for uh like a sub kilo or kilo wheel set and then you know once you get the frame and the wheels then there's only kind of so light you can go on handlebars and stems and saddles you know you can go carbon fiber but you know there is only so light you can go at the moment with those so at the end of the day you know then it starts to come down to how well have you prepared yeah exactly and that's the main thing right it's the it's the it's the engine on top of the machine so i interjected then so sorry sorry about that um so the plan for the year was to to obviously continue with the the uk scene but also focus more on some on the hill climbing and yeah. internationally all right yeah and that's and that's why i uh, took a step away from the uci continental team that was uh, swift carbon the the contract was kind of too too strict or not too strict but for what i wanted to do there wasn't enough kind of um leniency there so i wanted to, to make sure that if if i was going to do this then i wanted to be not so much left alone but when you know if i was going to go into road racing mode then that would be me in road racing mode i'd race for the team no problem at all but as soon as I go into hill climbing mode, like we cut that, you know, that, that is a, that is a line that is drawn. And then, you know, I then go and do that. And I wanted it so that because of what had happened after the nationals, I realized, and I spoke to plenty of 
um, riders about this who who have you know years more experience than I do, and uh, also years more years more worth of regrets as well. And they said to me that the single biggest thing you can have is flexibility. And if you have you're in a position at the minute, they told me where you have sponsors and brands coming to you to do things and you like you can't turn them down if if they are if they want to invest in you and you think it's a good thing and there's there's a good relationship there you must go for that because if the team can't give you what you want and this is getting quite deep now probably but if if the team can't give you what you want then you don't have to stay there you don't don't feel obligated to ride for this team if you have raced on this scene for the last you know six or seven years. Don't feel like you have to be there for an eighth year or ninth year or tenth year. Um, yeah, get stuck, stuck into it. It's, it's a really interesting point, and I think you no, know, I, I wanted to come on to get your views on on cycling as a whole, but I think potentially the sports at a bit of a crossroad. But it, that is an issue with regards to where, particularly road race professional road race cycling is now you know even even with emma pooley i had on last week and she was saying that she got a lot of stick when she retired from road racing uh, and people were saying she was stepping down when she went and did triathlon and and duathlon but she made more money as a professional athlete doing that and stepping away from road racing uh, and having that flexibility to pick and choose her racing but with the with as an outsider like myself i look at the sport and you read about the challenges that teams have with regards to just being financially um, sustainable uh, and then you think about the publicity that you know, you mentioned Lachlan Morton, Phil Guyman, and and some of the things y- yourself are doing now. Surely you'd think that you know, giving you signing you onto a road racing team, and then giving you the flexibility to make headlines at potentially like Taiwan KOM or other races, is a great investment for for sponsors. No? Yeah, it is. It just depends if because the only way I could do it was was to to actually end the contract early which is what I've done this year. There, there was no way, even though there was like a, a mutual agreement at the start of this year that, that, that we could, that I could pursue, you know, Taiwan KOM or, or, you know, whatever, whatever it was at the end of this year in the hill climb season, you know, the world pandemic has kind of, you know, shot us in the foot, but that's changed all the plans and hence why I've decided to, to pull out of, you know, elite road racing for the time being. Yeah. But I was actually watching the behind the scenes it only came out a couple of days ago but the behind the scenes video from Lachlan Morton doing the GB Duro and if you read the comments on that YouTube video there are like almost every comment is this is so inspiring or this is something that like I I get more kick out of watching this than I do watching a six-hour stage of the Tour de France and it makes me think like you know Rafa, EF, you know, Callendale, all these sponsors, like this is, this is golden. Like this is exactly what, you know, a a rider is, is, is doing what he wants to do and and he's enjoying himself. He's got a smile on his face. Yeah. 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 He's riding like, yes, he's like, he's obviously tired, but then that, that there is the, the the crossover in comparison so you know me you or i could go and do it and we'd be in the exact same position as lachlan like lachlan is on his knees hiking up a hill 
And you know, you don't you don't see that in the Tour de France and people but, have but that connection. It, but I think it's to your point you said, you know, seven years, do you go and do it for another eight years? I think there is this um almost obsession of just doing the same thing again or or sort of a reluctance to change or sort of constantly looking back at like historical things. That's the way we've done it in the past. And there are more ways to skin a cat. And you know, you look at you look at that yeah, Lachlan Morton there, and then you read about, you know, Mitchton Scott apparently got far better publicity not riding Parry Nice and race you know racing on Zwift than, than they did had they done the race and you know the, there are so many different things with regards to social media and the diversification of the sport and you know look at Matthew van der Poel and different racing that he's doing and you know, hopefully there are sort of seeds being planted that for, for positive changes in terms of looking elsewhere and, and moving away from that cookie cutter model yeah and, and what's good about like what they're what they're doing maybe not so much Lachlan straight out but you know, particularly with, you know, Phil Guyman or even Lionel Sanders, you know, with, with, with the triathlon, it's, yeah. it's very much like, you know, Strava is a place where, you know, I think people can all fight for a similar goal. But, you know, the fighting talk that you hear from Phil Guyman and, you know, his tweets and the stuff on YouTube and Strava, there's lots of things that people can like, you know, there's lots of like, like I say, fighting talk, but it's all for it's all for fun, really, for for the most part. And there's lots of crossover because people people have said to me like, you know, oh, when you're going out to to race against Phil Guyman, or like when you're gonna try and take a KOM off um, off Lionel Sanders, or when you're gonna you know take Contador's Everesting record. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I can't believe people are coming to me or looking to me to do these things. Where you know, I, I'm not saying that I'm like you know, the best hill climber in the UK or the best hill climber, you know, in the world, because that was just me on that one day to be national hill climb champion. But, you know, that's the, you know, you don't see it from, from Froome or from, you know, the, the world tour riders as much you do from some of them um, who have got, yes, uh, yes you do hear from yeah. some of them who've got great social media following but for the yeah. most part, a lot of them, you know, they have somebody else doing it for them or the team puts out, you know, um, uh, a quote from them. And yeah. it's just not, you know, people are starting to follow athletes now. They're not starting to follow teams, I don't think. People are starting to support individuals. Athletes, yeah. Well, I think with cycling, I think unless it changes and it moves into a situation where you have a team that doesn't change its name all the time, I think you're right. It is down down to the athletes. Yeah. But again, I think to your point about like it doesn't have to be, uh, uh, you know, what you're doing and what Phil Guyman's doing or professional road racing. Like we can embrace all of it and 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 make cycling a more commercial, appealing, and easier to follow sport. You know, there's no reason we can't have you and Phil Guyman do a do a hill climb. And also still be super excited about Strabianki on Saturday. Like it's there's a, there's a yeah. place for all of it. And if, if people sort of join the dots a little bit better and are a little bit more collaborative, I think there's lots of opportunities for people. Oh, definitely, definitely. But it's it is going through that sticky situation at the minute where you know I think the pandemic hasn't helped, but it has exposed certain things like you know the Zwift racing and and the the you know the, what happens when there is no racing like. What, what does a team do? Where do the sponsors go? Like some teams in the UK, or they've had, I know one team has had their bikes or the riders have had their bikes recalled so that they can be sold to make sure that they keep 
the money, whereas, you know, what's the rider supposed to do then? Like, unless he has his own bike, which, you know, he then has to pay for to ride. Well, does the team pay him? No. Well, then where's he? What? There's no, you know, how can you expect a rider to pay for the bike if he's riding for a professional team, for example, and you're supposed to get paid? Well, if he's not getting paid, how does he? So, yeah, it's like a, it's a vicious circle of, of, yeah. Like, uh, hang on. This is it's not like a it's not like a, a long career, and it's not like a cushy nine to five, right? It's a seven day a week job, and it's it's all consuming. And if you're not getting paid and and getting short term contracts, and you know, it's it's a horrible situation. It's very it's a hard world, but hopefully, maybe some some positives can can come out. Maybe we'll have to go through some pain first, but hopefully, some positives can come out of the COVID situation in terms of maybe restructuring things in a more sustainable manner. Yeah, I'm I'm confident. I'm confident this this period of time will will straighten things. Good, good. I got all a bit bit, bit deep there, didn't it? Um, <laughs> so, despite despite all the lockdown, you've still got some races hopefully coming up in the not in in the next couple of weeks, right? Tell us all about those. Yeah, so on the eighth of August, I've got Tour de Stations, which I didn't actually hear about until the start of this year when I hooked up with Band of Climbers. Band of Climbers made my uh, national championship skin suit, which is black. Uh, we haven't gone for the white kit. We've gone for black instead. I think I've worn black kit for the last eight years of my cycling career. So wh- why change? Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's, it's monumental. It's 230 kilometers. They've actually added in an extra climb for this race as well. And it's eight and a half thousand meters of climbing, which is almost the equivalent of doing an Everest in. Yeah. So that, but yeah, that's going to be... That's going to be on the 8th of August. And then... Where is that? From where to where? Where in the world? That is about 20 kilometers south of Geneva. Great. Starts and finishes. Starts and finishes in Verbier, I think. Nice. Lovely. So you've got that and that's in a couple of weeks. And then what's next? Well, when I come back from that, the rest of August will probably be spent prepping for the national. uh, Well, not for the national, but for what will be left of the the hill climbing in the uk so the first couple of hill climbs are in early august but because they clash with this event i'm already doing then i've already penciled in a couple for september and then october as well and then you know the majority of them are longer climbs um i missed out because i was doing the tour of britain last year um i missed out on doing kind of great Dunfell you know, um, the struggle, the, these climbs that are quite famous in, in the north of England. Yeah. And yeah. and then, yeah, like all being well, I mean, it is still only, you know, end of July. You know, hopefully things will be a little bit clearer in terms of travel to, to Asia, you know, the, the Taiwan KRM challenge, which I'm... It's still on at the moment, isn't it? From what I understand, it's still scheduled to be on? It is still on. They are accepting entries. Uh, The last I heard, I need to, if I'm going to go, but this is as of now, I would need to quarantine for, or self-isolate, for two weeks and provide a a negative test result three days prior to to travel in there. So that's a little bit difficult 
to get. Yeah, that sounds pretty hectic. That sounds pretty hectic. Yeah. Okay, that's a shame. That's a that's an amazing part of the world, Taroko Gorge, and a, a beautiful event. So that's I'd love to see how you get on on that one. And someone, a, a good friend of mine, we've had on the podcast before, David Lloyd, who runs a company called Velo Vietnam. They're looking at putting on a, a KOM in Vietnam as well. So if you if you're looking at doing more more hill climbing races in the future, I'll, I'll certainly connect connect you with him. Well, fun, funny you say that. Um, I became friends with him uh, about a month ago on Facebook. So there you go. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's it's great to to have a mutual contact there. I mean, like it, that part of the world is is littered with with massive climbs. But actually, I forgot the the Marmot Alps is rescheduled for early September, first weekend of September. And it's on. Yeah. Well, I was. I mean, again, it's all dependent, but I was going to have a stab at the the hill climb, which is two days prior to the Marmot. They usually have a hill climb time trial at Alpe d'Huez. Oh, wow. And I was going to have a go at Roman Bardet's time. <laughs> wow. Okay. What 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 is his time up there? <laughs> I've not looked properly. You know. <laughs> I don't think I want to. No, that would be amazing. Yeah, I had a couple of people actually message me and say, "Have you done it, or, or what time do you reckon you could go up up the Wes?" Yeah, I think it's I think it's something like thirty five minutes around that sort of ballpark for Bardi. Blimey, that's about fifteen minutes, twenty minutes quicker than me. <laughs> yeah, and that's at the end of a race, probably. I know, absolutely crazy. Very good. Look, I'm, I just, I just, I didn't realise I've lost track of the time. It's been such an enjoyable chat. But have I missed anything? Is there anything else that we we haven't covered off yet? I can't think of anything. Been a good chat. I've enjoyed it. No, it's been really good. And uh, yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's um, it's nice to chat about these things because, well, other than to people in my close circle, to be honest, because it's very, it's very much a, a closed sport, I think, in some regards. And um, yeah, yeah, like you know, some of the people you've had on already in the past like they provide you know a, a quite a good insight into into the world of so like particularly you know emma pooley's transfer from cycling to triathlon like like you said like it's you don't have to be like she was successful on the road as a you know as a very very good road racer so there's nothing and time trialing obviously and there's no there's no stopping her from from going across to another sport and try like you, you should you shouldn't be pigeonholed, should you? It's not. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it's just life's too short. It is too short. I think it is too short. I think, um, but it's also in defence of the teams. I think it's very difficult when you're you're trying to get sponsorship and the sponsors want various things and things have been done the same way for so long and everything's done, you know, quarter to quarter or month to month. It's 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 a really tricky situation, which is why I hope maybe this the current situation might might help um, instigate some change. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I think it will. Well, it's it's got to because you'll just have more and more people looking at what you know, Lachlan Morton does and what all these other people are doing, and you know they they'll want to make the most of what they do as individual athletes, and that's not for you know sponsors can offer more, but then what do they get in return? You know, I think when you sponsor a team, it's very difficult. You know, you know you have to give say 10 riders 10 bikes and you don't have to give them 10 helmets and you know 10 pairs of shoes and and all this but then you know you have to make sure that you get something back in return and it's not just about race results you know it's not just about 
being in front of the camera well, on, it, on right? TV. I, there was um, actually at the Tour of Britain, I remember, you know, say if say if a team has 100,000 followers on Instagram and, yeah. you know, they failed to get in the break that day in, in the Tour de France, well, instead of, you know, sitting on it and going, well, we need to get in the break tomorrow, why don't they, like, do like a spontaneous live stream from inside the bus, all the riders chatting after the race. And I bet they'd get more eyeballs on that than they would have if they got in the breakaway. Of course they would. Yeah. And this is what I think the sport needs to look at. You look at some of the American sports, how well they're marketed and, and how professional they are. And and even football over here, right? I think that, you know, you need to, quant- how, do you, how do you quantify the market value of, an athlete in cycling yes of course it's results and and performances but actually the way the world's going it's far greater than that it's it's what they can bring on social media face to face it's it's the whole package um, you you're, you're basically becoming an individual brand essentially uh-huh. yeah yeah, I agree with you. I like it. Very good. Well, let, let's, um, yeah, well, uh, all the best for the races. We will be following on YouTube. And let anyone listening, please do check out Ed's channel. Give it a subscribe. It's it's highly interesting and, and brilliantly entertaining. And, and hopefully now you've heard him and I have a, a bit of a, a natter about stuff, it will um, it'll be more interesting to, to follow him on his adventures and journeys. Yeah, thank you, Paul. It's been, uh, been my pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Well, hopefully, yeah, come back next year and we'll love to catch up and see how things have uh, been going since today's chat. Definitely, would love to. All the best, Ed. Take care of yourself. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast and more importantly, don't forget to download the Unfound app and join cyclists from around the world on the hub. We'll see you on there.